Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is it legal too? A regular look at the legal system and you, a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farah Fight. Farah, I haven't seen you in person for I don't know how long. We're back in a studio for the first time in how many months do you think it's been since we did? Oh Monday? gosh. Close to two years probably. Yeah. COVID yeah. COVID has kept us apart. But it feels we, good to be back, it right? Does. In real in real life. Yeah, it's great. It's great. We've had some uh, pretty meaty topics in this series going back a couple of years, more than 20 podcasts posted so far. I hadn't realized we'd done that many. And that's not counting those we have in the can that will be posted later. That's correct. We've discussed all kinds of things. We have, from courtroom novels and TV shows to constitutional rights, such as the freedom to assemble, to love and marriage. And we even had that fun episode on laws relating to Halloween. Yeah. Today's topic might seem to be a little inside baseball, court automation and case net. But it's really not, and we'll dive into this a little bit more, and you'll find it's a pretty fascinating subject. It's a service to the general public, and we have someone with us to explain all of these things. Our guest today is Chief Judge Gary Lynch of the Missouri Court of Appeals, Southern District. He has been on the court since 2006, and he is also the chair of the Missouri Court Automation Committee. Judge, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me, Farrah and Bob. It's good to be here. Judge, would you explain court automation? When I hear a phrase like that, I kind of envision a manufacturing process with computerized equipment, you know, putting fenders on cars, stuff like that. I sense that that's not what court automation is all about. That's correct. (laughs) (laughs) That phrase was coined uh, maybe 25 years ago when computer technology was starting to invade everything we do. But yet it, it does capture those things that courts do on a routine basis. Can we automate those things so that they are consistent in the process that we do? And that automation comes through primarily uh, computer technology. I have read news stories and information that the Supreme Court of Missouri has put out over the years that highlights that Missouri is actually a leader in court automation. Can you give us some of the examples of maybe not just even a national leader, but an international leader in this field? Yes, and Missouri is fortunate and a little bit unique in the nation in that we have not only a unified court system, a statewide court system, but our automation systems, technology systems are statewide. Most states have it on a court-by-court basis. Court A would have a particular type of technology. Court B, in a different location, would have a different type of technology. But Missouri, through some wise decisions by our legislature back in the, the early 90s, made a path and said, let's have a statewide court automation system. And that does make Missouri unique. So when we improve the technology or the automation in one court, we're improving the automation and technology in every court in the state. And that makes Missouri unique. We've been recognized for that and has been recognized internationally among different international courts with an international award. I think we came in behind Dubai for their uh, court automation. I'm guessing they have a bigger budget than we do for court automation. I suspect they do. The other thing that makes Missouri somewhat unique in the technology automation area, we not only have a statewide system, 
we have taken charge of that and do the development of our own system. And most other courts and most other states will go out and buy third-party vendor-developed software, and then they shoehorn their court processes into that vendor-provided software. And Missouri has taken the position that courts and court processes are best developed by the courts and that we find those best processes and then we develop the automation to those best practices, those best processes. Is Missouri a prototype for other states? Do other states look at our system and try to replicate that? We are recognized for our uniqueness, Mm -hmm. and some other states do that. We go to national conferences, and we will meet with technology teams from other states. We talk about what we do and how we do it and how we approach it for Missouri, and then they take the good parts of that. If they can replicate it in their state, they do. But likewise, we do the same thing. And when, when we talk with other states, they will, you know, if, if we find something good that they do, then we'll try and replicate it here in Missouri on it. So it's an evolving system. Absolutely. It will never be completed. One of our guiding principles is continuous improvement. What we have may be good, but we can always do better. How far down in the layers of the court system does this operate? I mean, you got all the way down to circuit court, associate circuit. Do you get into probate business, things like that? Is that uh, included too? Every, every division of the circuit court, our court automation system covers the Supreme all cases in the Supreme Court, all cases in the Court of Appeals, and all cases and case types in the circuit courts. Mm-hmm. Our latest monumental project has been bringing all of the municipal divisions of the circuit court onto the statewide system. We started that in uh, 2017, and we are about at a 92% completion on it. And we hope that with just within the next year, two years, we will have every division of every court in the state on the same system. From the standpoint of history, how far back can one go to look at at documents involved in cases like this? Are you going into your archives and pulling old documents out and putting them in? We have in the past, as we implemented each of the circuit courts onto the statewide system, we converted older electronic documents, electronic records into the statewide system. And depending on how far back those courts had electronic records, then that's how far we can go back. Now, that varied from court to court. And so when you ask how far we can go back, you know, in one court, it may be pretty far back into, say, the 80s. In another court, it may only be in the 90s. We're used to hearing the very common legal answer of it depends on this show. (laughs) And and, and being a lawyer, that's uh, my favorite answer. (laughs) I imagine that having a statewide system of this nature creates efficiencies and for judges and likely lawyers. What does it mean for the public? What it means for the public is that they can interact with the courts, uh, hopefully in a more standardized way, so that they will be more comfortable in that interaction and that it removes some artificial barriers to access to justice. 
the main goal of every judge in the state is to provide individual justice in each individual case. But what is a hindrance to that in the past has been that each court and sometimes each judge within the court will have their own individual way of doing procedural type things. And so a lot of it would look like, well, it just depends on what judge you get as to how you do something. To the extent we can standardize those procedural things, never get into the judge's decision, you know, for the judicial decision making, but to the extent we can standardize and make routine those procedural matters, then people are not going to have artificial barriers to accessing the courts and and seeking to get justice in their cases. The Missouri Bar has a motto, equal justice under law. How does this plug into that? The computer doesn't care who you are when you interact in a procedural manner. It does not know, it does not care whether you're an individual, whether you're a corporation, whether you're male, whether you're female. It doesn't know what your race is. I think it contributes significantly to that level playing field that the courts are to provide uh, to all litigants. And, and that's why I love the technology part of it. Mm-hmm. And once again, we want to use technology to further the administration of justice and never to create artificial barriers to getting that justice. So the Court Automation Committee, they're in charge of all of this. Is that correct? That's correct. Tell us a little bit about their structure and how they work. Okay. And how long do we have for this podcast? (laughs) (laughs) We don't give a time limit, but think of of your listeners and their interest level. (laughs) I understand. This is another area in which Missouri is unique. This is the only state that I'm aware of that has this structure. Most states have uh, automation technology are directly under the authority of the state Supreme Court. Missouri took a little different approach and in 1994 enacted Section 476.055 of the Revised Statutes of Missouri that created the Court Automation Fund, which is a $7 per case fee to fund court automation, and created the Missouri Court Automation Committee to administer that fund and to develop and implement a plan for a statewide court automation system. So they gave the Court Automation Committee the charge to do this, the authority to do it, and what they thought at the time was sufficient funding to do that, okay? And they made the the Court Automation Committee different than any other committee in the state in that we not only have judicial people on the committee, we have members from the legislative branch and the executive branch. We have about 13 or 14 judicial members, and then we have two members from the House of Representatives, two members from the Senate, two members selected by the Board of Governors of the Missouri Bar. We have the state public defender is a member of our committee. The executive director of the Missouri Office of Prosecution Services uh, is a member of our committee. And so we cover all three branches of government, which is a unique type arrangement. And then we have authority over that statewide court automation system. That's great. I didn't realize the full structure of that and how it was unique. 
So. It is unique. It does make for an interesting relationship between the Supreme Court and the Court Automation Committee. I usually refer to that as a strange and wonderful relationship. <laughs> They're wonderful. We're a little strange. <laughs> As we record this program, you're headed to a committee meeting. Correct. Afterwards. Give us an idea of what kind of things you're going to be discussing. Oh, my. At this particular committee yeah. meeting, it's a subcommittee meeting, and we, as you might imagine, have many subgroups. The one today is the Change Control Subcommittee, and the responsibility of that subcommittee is to make decisions on minor uh, changes in the statewide court automation software, and then on any major changes, they make recommendations to the Court Automation Committee with regard to changing that system software-wise. So it sounds like the structure of this organization is such that you're constantly assessing where you are and constantly assessing where you want to be, and you've got the structure in place to, to really move quickly to make adjustments. Within the, the confines or the consideration of government, we move quickly. <laughs> That's <laughs> okay. a nice way of putting it. <laughs> As compared to business, yeah. we move kind of slow. I want to touch on the idea of court automation and all the facets of it. So I know that as a former journalist, recovering journalist, I was introduced to CaseNet early on for both work purposes. And then I may have looked up a few people before blind dates as well. <laughs> but I, and I think the majority of Missouri citizens, when they hear court automation, they think CaseNet. CaseNet. But that's just one of the many facets of court automation. Is that correct? Oh, that's correct. CaseNet is the public facing part of court automation. And that's another thing that makes Missouri unique. We were one of the first states to have online access to court records and court cases on it. And CaseNet is an evolving type application for the public. But in order to have that, there is so much that goes on in the background, primarily our case management system. And that's what we use internally in the courts to manage all of the cases. We will have close to 2 million cases a year and managing those cases and keeping track of everything that goes on in those cases is a, is a large job. We implemented a software program. It was a vendor-developed program back in the—it was developed in the 80s. We started implementing it in the 90s, and we call that—it's the Justice Information System. We call it JIS. So if I slip and mention JIS, that's our legacy case management system. We are in the process of developing our second-generation case management system that we have named Show Me Courts. And Show Me Courts is developed using the same databases as JIS, but is completely new programming that once it's fully implemented and JIS can be retired, will give us the, the foundations and the ability to hopefully move a little faster in making changes, uh, software changes, and in reaching into new areas. So the, the backbone of our system is our case management program. We also have a jury management as you can imagine, having jury trials involves so many people in bringing in jury panels, contacting them, everything else. We have a program called Show Me Jury that manages that part of it. We also have internal programs 
to assist judges in doing their jobs electronically. And we call that e-bench for the judges to interact with the system. We have an e-filing system that allows parties through their attorneys to e-file documents with the court. And that has been a wonderful tool that I don't know how we could have continued through the pandemic if we had not implemented e-filing a little over 10 years ago. So yeah, there's a whole array. We have a, a what we call a portfolio of court software. And I, I think there are about 15 or 20 different applications that are involved in all of that. I need to ask you about the, the show me jury process. Is this used to help assemble juries? And is there ever a danger that names of jurors or potential jurors will appear in this material? There is a danger, but we, and, and that's the, the last requirement of, on the Missouri Court Automation Committee that the legislature charged us with, and that is the security of confidential court records. And we take extreme steps as much as we possibly can to live up to that charge and to make certain that those confidential records they remain secure. Now, Show Me Jury certainly has that information in it, but I can tell you there are layers and layers of safeguards to make certain that the confidential information is not available. However, I think even anyone would tell you that cybersecurity is a major, major issue, and you can take every possible reasonable step that can be taken and someone can be out there and find a vulnerability. I would like to say we've never been attacked. We've been attacked. We are under attack every day. CaseNet, because you're forward-facing on that. Show Me Jury has an online interface for panel members to file their online uh, jury questionnaires and do that online rather than having to mail it in or come into the courthouse. But anytime you're online, you're opening yourself up to a cybersecurity vulnerability. And all we can do is take every reasonable step possible to keep that from happening. That's another it depends question. Yeah. And, and it depends on, you know, who's out there trying to get to you and whether or not you stay up on the latest security issues. And we certainly try and do that. So if I go to CaseNet and look up a particular case that has been decided somewhere in a courtroom, I cannot find out the names of the jurors. You cannot. Now, after the fact, there may be a, a release of some records publicly that would do that, but that would be well after the fact and after the service was completed. On CaseNet, the public-facing element, or the primary public-facing element of the court automation process here in Missouri, I know that PACERS is like the comparison at the federal level they charge a fee for public access. Is that the case with CaseNet? We have taken the position from day one that this is a matter of transparency. It's a matter of equal access to the courts. And while the law allows the judiciary to charge for access, we have taken the position that's a last resort. And, and I am pleased to say we do not charge for any access. And when we talk about new functionality, that's a big part of the discussion. How can we do this without a user fee? 
We have a user fee. I mentioned the $7 per case for court automation, but I've had discussions in public hearings with the legislature in the Senate and in the House about the judiciary is a branch of government and is an essential function of government, and it should be funded by general revenue. And the legislature's been responsive to that. When it became clear that the $7 court automation fee was just not enough, the legislature and the the Supreme Court worked together and have increased general revenue funding. And so that's that's our first goal, and we are resistant to any type of of additional user fee. Does that answer your question? Yes, yes, it does. This sounds like a good time for a segment we call Legalese with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legalese, that means we ask Judge Wolf to translate the lawyer's language into English. Judge? Legalese. Court automation was in its infancy when I applied to be a judge on the Missouri Supreme Court in 1998. I was interviewed by the seven members of the Appellate Judicial Commission, the group that screens and nominates candidates for the Supreme Court and Court of Appeals. The chair, who was the Chief Justice, asked whether I believed in court automation. I replied, that reminds me of the story about the fellow who was asked if he believed in infant baptism. Believe in it, he said. Heck yes, I've seen it done. So it was great to listen to my old friend Judge Gary Lynch of the Southern District Court of Appeals describe the unique and nationally recognized role that our so-called court automation plays in the functioning of our civil and criminal justice system. When Judge Lynch applied for an opening on the Court of Appeals in 2006, I was the Chief Justice and Chair of the Appellate Judicial Commission. That's when I first met Judge Lynch. I knew from the interview and his application that he was far ahead of most lawyers, including me, in the embrace of technology to enhance his law practice. It did not take long for Judge Lynch, after he was nominated by the commission and appointed by the governor, to work his way into a vital role on the Court Automation Committee, the group of judges, lawyers, and non-lawyer techies the Supreme Court appoints to oversee and promote the technological enhancement of our legal system. He has been the committee's chair for the last several years. This committee over the years has performed a remarkable balancing act, balancing the public's right to know and the interest in protecting the privacy of individual information. When developing a computer-based system and an internet-type network, to improve the administration of justice in our state in real-life cases. Court automation, the availability of information on CaseNet, for instance, enhances the public's understanding by making court processes and results quickly transparent and accessible. Much of the public only sees judges as women and men in black robes who decide cases. What most do not see is that many judges, including especially those on the Supreme Court and on the Court of Appeals, serve in critical non-judge roles in the operation of our statewide judicial system. Judge Lynch's service as chair of this Court Automation Committee is emblematic of such service, unheralded and yet essential. When court automation was first introduced nearly 30 years ago, I was struck by how odd the name is, court automation. There is nothing automated about judicial decision-making, I thought. Each case demands human attention, not the operation of an algorithm, but the task of keeping track of court records and evidence in judicial proceedings can be made faster and more accessible through the use of modern technology. The internet has allowed us to give the public unprecedented access to judicial proceedings. Court automation was also the label 
to use when getting approval by the legislature of a filing fee add-on of $7 per case to support the development and use of this technology. Justice, I might warn, is not a pay-as-you-go system. Our system relies on the state's taxpayers because we cannot impose all or most of those costs on those who come to our courts expecting justice, regardless of ability to pay. We don't ask those who use the court to buy pencils for the judges, and by the same principle we should not impose on those coming to court the expense of operating a computer system. But a tax, once imposed, rarely goes away. At least it has not gone up. A final note about Judge Lynch. As I listen to him, he still sounds young, too young for retirement. But the Missouri Constitution says a judge must retire at age 70. Federal judges, by contrast, have no mandatory retirement date. They are appointed for life. In 1975, when the age 70 mandatory retirement was most recently approved as part of the judicial article of our state constitution, the life expectancy in the United States was 72 years a few years less for men, a few years more for women. And a few years ago, average life expectancy was 79 years, although it has fallen a bit in the past couple of years, largely as a result of the COVID pandemic. Despite nature's challenges, we are living longer. As Judge Lynch and other youngest judges pass their judicial expiration dates, we can hope they flunk retirement, at least in part, and continue to devote at least part of their remaining years to public service. We can, of course, replace older judges with younger ones who likely have grown up with computer technology. But it is one thing to master the technology, as most teenagers have, but quite another to have the wisdom to apply technology to serve the public without stripping away the protection of individual privacy that is so essential to a functioning society. I am sorry we are losing Gary Lynch as a full-time judge at such a young age. So do I say is simply this, old friend, congratulations, judge, and thank you for your service as judge and as computer guru. This is Mike Wolf, staring into the ageless future. Legal ease. If I go to CaseNet and I look up a case mm-hmm. that's been decided, can I read a transcript of testimony in that case? Is that part of the court record that is published on CaseNet? It is not a generally for the general public. Mm-hmm. Okay. The way e-filing was developed, and this is before my time on the Court Automation Committee, it was developed as an assistance to the court. And in that regard, it was not for public access. The attorneys are officers of the court. So the e-filing system was developed only for attorneys to e-file documents and have access to e-file documents. Since that time, however, there has been a public demand for more or easier access to public documents. That has been a, a slowly evolving type thing of the public documents have always been available at the courthouse whether they were paper or now electronic, they are available. So if there's a transcript on a case, it would be publicly available at the courthouse. The The next phase of that is, well, if I can electronically access it at the courthouse, why can't I electronically access it at my office or at my home or anywhere I can access the internet, just like I access CaseNet? 
And so that's an issue we're dealing with and, and working with currently. In some cases before a court hearing, people who can't be in the court are interviewed and their testimony from the interview is admitted. Is that part of the court record on CaseNet too? Or is it the same thing as transcripts? Yeah, you're talking about a deposition, yeah. I think yeah. is yeah. The, the technical yeah. term yeah. of it. Yeah. But that's where someone gives testimony under oath outside mm-hmm. of court. Mm-hmm. It's transcribed into the written deposition and then parts of it are offered into evidence on it. Exhibits uh, and, and a deposition would be part of an exhibit mm-hmm. are generally not part of the court record. They are maintained by the parties, and they are subject to being produced when the court directs, okay, you know, I need these exhibits that were admitted into evidence to make a decision. But once I make a decision on this case and enter a judgment, then I'm going to return the exhibits to the parties. If there's an appeal, the parties then have to produce those exhibits to the appellate court and so forth. So most times, exhibits like a deposition are not formally made part of the court record, so they would not be in CaseNet or in the case management system with the court, so there would be no access to those on it. The reason I was asking that is because in doing some historical research on the location of the state capitol Mm -hmm. uh, 100, 200 years ago, there was a dispute over an old Spanish land grant and whether the place where Jefferson City is located now was actually owned by somebody else. And I went back through some very old records and I found depositions from 1846. Oh my. And so I just wondered if, you know, and somebody 150 years from now would be able to find depositions in the court records. But in this case, it would be in the records at the courthouse. That's correct. And and how they did things with exhibits back 200 yeah, years yeah, ago yeah. might be a little different than today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about grand jury information? Grand jury information is all confidential. And mm-hmm. so I'm not aware, and, and I, I want to say in my current position, I don't deal with grand juries on a regular basis. Right. So I don't purport to be an expert on that. But I don't believe any of that would be available on CaseNet. Indictments would be. When they are filed, yeah. when the indictment is filed with the court, a case number is assigned per defendant. And that would be available on CaseNet once the arrest warrant is executed or served. There is a confidential period in there in which the indictment is not a public record until the arrest warrant has been served on the defendant, which makes sense. Yeah. I suspect that people who are planning to hire individuals likely use CaseNet, potentially. Are there tips or guidance that you give the public or suggest to the public in their use of CaseNet of, you know, not just looking up individuals, but how to discern the information that they may be viewing? It is always amazing to me the uses the public makes of CaseNet. <laughs> My uh, sister and brother-in-law own some apartments. And so anytime someone comes in to rent an apartment, they do a, a search on CaseNet, you know, and I think a lot of landlords use it that way. Uh, you alluded to this earlier, Farah, <laughs> but I think there's a lot of dads out there of 16 and 17-year-old <laughs> girls that <laughs> they look up the 
the boy who's going to take their daughter out on a date, look them up on CaseNet to see uh, whether there are any anything that would be interesting <laughs> on it. So uh, the uses of CaseNet are far and wide, and that's good. You know, if it helps the public and it's public information, that's great. The problem is you probably on the public side need to be a little bit skeptical of the information you get as to the identity of the person. And I've got to go into a little bit of technicality here, but when it's a different computer world, technology world today than it was in the early 1990s, 30 years ago. At the time that we started developing the court technology in the 90s, you did not have the internet. It wasn't out with everybody. You had to have individual servers in local locations. So the court system was set up where each circuit, and we have 46 circuits, we have three districts of the courts of appeals, and we have the Supreme Court. Each of those jurisdictions were set up with their own databases. Even though it was they had the same software, JIS, they had individual databases. Well, this means that a person could be in an individual database in multiple individual databases. And so you can go out to CaseNet, and when you do a case search, you can do it statewide. I mean, it'll, it'll return them all but you may get multiple identities of a person. Is Donald Patrick Brooks, and I'll use Pat Brooks, who's the director of IT, as an example, (laughs) because he uses this. Is Donald Patrick Brooks the same person as Pat Brooks? Because maybe entered in one database in one circuit with one name and another database with another name. Or it could be two different people. And so I would urge the public to come with a little bit of being skeptical about, is this the same person? And you can take steps to verify that. And if it is, okay. If it's not, then you shouldn't use the information there. Does your, is your system able to break out who is using it? I mean, you, are you able to say 40% of our requests are from lawyers and judges, 30% are men, 20% are women, Five percent are worried parents. Things, however, you, <laughs> however you want to break it down. Do you get any kind of a breakdown on who uses this for registered users of e-filing mm-hmm. and for the a part of CaseNet that's available to those registered users? The answer is yes. For the public use, the anonymous use of CaseNet, Bob, when you go on and you just look, look up a case, we have no way of knowing who you are where you are, or anything like that. We do take steps to make sure you're not a robot. It's that little, sometimes, the it, and then they've even gotten away from that little checkbox. Mm-hmm. But we do have people that would love to come in and, or, and scrape our information. And if someone is accessing CaseNet 24 hours a day, seeking information, we cut them off. We don't know who they are but we will cut off access from their internet address. So one of the many security protocols that you have in place. There you go. <laughs> and then we wait for the phone to ring. <laughs> and then we may, we may find out who they are. And if the phone doesn't ring, then it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. You mentioned earlier with e-filing being in place, that allowed our court systems to continue to 
work through the pandemic, especially during kind of the stay-at-home orders and the inability for us to convene, you know, in person. Did the Court Automation Committee also make recommendations as to how to hold virtual hearings or how electronic signatures would work on documents? Or is that an, a whole other area that oh, you were involved in? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the e-filing, and I want to be sure and come back around to that, because while it was developed and implemented for attorneys, we are working on self-represented litigants, non-represented litigants having that same type of access on it. So I, I want to cover that. But when the pandemic hit, having the ability to e-file documents was tremendous. We translate that for uh, non-represented parties that if they mail in a document or deliver it to the court, the court scans it. So it becomes an electronic document. They just don't have to submit it in an electronic way. One of the things some courts did is they allowed non-represented litigants to email documents that they wanted to scan. And so that was another way of getting a, an electronic document filed without having to go to the courthouse or without having to even go to the mailbox. And not all courts did that, but, but a good number of courts allowed the email filing of documents. So that's number one. Number two, um, when this started hitting, little was known about it. You know, all of us, I think I remember something about 10 days to flatten the curve. And, you know, is this a two-week thing? Is this going to be a two-month thing? Or is it going to be a two-year thing? We, we really didn't know. Courts individually started scrambling. How do I hold court? We can't stop court. I mean, people's lives go on and their legal uh, need, their need to get these things resolved, need to go on. And the courts are just, you know, a vital part of government. We need to keep going. And so individual judges, individual courts started looking for ways to handle matters. And I'm getting calls from attorneys all across the state saying, Judge, We've got 10 or 12 different platforms out here that different judges are using. And sometimes within the same court, one judge is using one platform, one judge is using another platform, and we're having to try and keep track of what they're using. And then we've got to learn how to use all of those. Is there any way to zero in on this? And so we very quickly made the decision we needed to rein it in and only approve a certain video conferencing so that everyone had that standardization. The problem was, what if you put all your eggs in the Zoom basket? Or what if you put all your eggs in the WebEx ba uh, basket? Or all your eggs in the Microsoft Teams basket? Or all your eggs in the Google Meets basket? What if they got overwhelmed? And I mean, because everybody's going to remote appearances. And so we narrowed it down to WebEx and Zoom with the idea that if either one got overwhelmed, we would have the availability of the other to keep going. So initially, in answer to your question, we did. We stepped in and said, hey, you can only use WebEx or you can only use Zoom. And different judges picked what they preferred and we went on. However, we had had, believe it or not, a, a group, a subgroup that had been looking at video conferencing, and they just hadn't completed their report or their work because there wasn't an urgency. And as you can imagine, as soon as the <laughs> pandemic hit, they 
got into gear and started meeting, they recommended that we zero in on WebEx for a lot of different reasons, internal and external and security and, and all other factors. And so the Court Automation Committee made the decision to phase out Zoom and to focus solely on WebEx and using WebEx as the interface for video conferencing with the courts on it. That's probably too long of an answer. No, it's, yeah, yeah, I think it's really helpful. And again, that standardization sounds like it's a benefit for all the users. Correct. And, uh, you know, by the time we were ready to, to go say we're going to use WebEx exclusively, you can imagine we had some very ardent users of Zoom. <laughs> and and so that's a that was a difficult step, but the judges chin the pole. And now anyone who interacts with the courts in a remote fashion will be using WebEx. I see video cases on television or wherever. And when I think of the remote trials that people have had to hold because of pandemics, is the video of a trial considered any kind of an official record? And is that video of the whole trial ever archived under CaseNet? Or do you see a time when it might be? Three questions there. Yeah. Okay. We prohibit the recording of any video conferencing. There's a real easy record button Mm -hmm. right there. To the extent we can remove it, we do that. It's under our court rule. We do not allow anyone to record that video. And the official court record is kept just like it's always been kept, either with a court reporter or on the official for the record. We call it FTR, for the record computer program, the microphone, it makes the recording of it, and that's the official record. So it's an audio record. It's an audio record, just as it's been since 1979. That was approved in 1979 to have an audio record. And it is an audio record that is later, if if an appeal occurs or a question comes up, then a transcript is developed from the audio record. But the video, if there is a video taken, it's in violation of policy and it is not the official record. Do I see that changing in the future? And I think the answer is yes on that. I mean, technology is not going to go away. Uh, And I think uh, the past has demonstrated it's only going to become more pervasive. And how we address that, you know, whether it'll be a year from now, I I doubt if it'll be a year from now, I'll be surprised if 10 years from now we don't have a video record. But under CaseNet, can I go into CaseNet and can I listen to a trial from several years ago, perhaps, because the audio record? Okay. No, the audio record is not kept on the case management system. There's a whole separate system for FTR, the for the record, the audio system, and that was developed separate from the case management system. And so that it would require a request directly to the local court to provide the audio recording on it. Now, there is a fee involved. I think it can be burned to a CD or a DVD or something like that, and you can get the audio recording through the clerk's office. But it is not part of the case management system or case net. I know that the Supreme Court of Missouri has the audio recordings but also does audio streaming of their cases. Is that something that the court automation 
committee chimes in on, or is that more of a kind of court? That's on court a court decision. by court basis, and and I I commend our Supreme Court. They have been a leader on that. When they led on um, e filing, they said we're going to be the first court to do it, and they provided that leadership for the courts of appeals and the circuit courts. And they're doing that on the live streaming and on the archiving of the audio recordings. We do not, in the Southern District on the Court of Appeals, we don't do the live streaming, but we do post the digital recording of the oral arguments within hours after they occur. So they're available online for a period of time uh, to be downloaded. I was interested in a case that was argued before the Supreme Court on Wednesday And yesterday, I downloaded the audio file and listened to it. And I think that's great. Recently, our United States Supreme Court has started uh, releasing those recordings of oral argument. And I think it's, it's wonderful to hear people, you know, that, well, I listened to it live or I listened to it on an archive version. And it's really fascinating to hear. Sometimes it gets pretty boring when they're talking about arcane legal issues but on things that affect the public, the oral arguments can be fascinating. Yeah, let me, let me kind of support that rather than ask you a question about it because I worked on this whole thing about recording and, and microphones in courtrooms for a number of years. One of the ideas behind that whole thing was it would help educate the public on understanding exactly what goes on in the courtroom, not what they see on law and order, but they would Dun-dun. understand Correct. how things work in a courtroom and how justice is actually formulated that way. If they can tolerate sitting there listening to this sausage being made. (laughs) But nonetheless, being able to sit in your own home and listen back to the audio of a Supreme Court hearing in Washington or even here, I think is very valuable in understanding just how the law works and how fine the grain is ground. And you can only do that by listening, not just reading summaries in the newspaper or hearing on radio. I also think that we are demonstrating to the public how to civilly resolve disputes. Oh, do we need that? <laughs> we, we definitely need that. Speaking of law and order, or I've often said the way we train folks on how to go about their divorce is through the soap operas on television. Well, that's wrong. That's just completely wrong. We, we should, you know, in a civil manner, address those legal disputes and factual disputes in an appropriate manner. And I think opening up the courts to do, now this is Gary Lynch, this is not the Court Automation Committee, but I think to the extent we can open up the courts to do that, we're doing a great service to the public. And that's what court automation really is all about, isn't it? It's not just internal operations, but it's opening things up so the public can actually see and see how it works. Absolutely, both on the proceedings and the documents on it. There's a presumption that any document that's filed in the court record is a public record, and it takes a specific legislative law or court rule or a determination by a judge that an otherwise public record should be confidential. And so the the presumption is it's public, and that's to provide the transparency that the courts should provide to the public so they can have trust and confidence in our decisions and how we do breach those decisions. Is it fair to say that court automation is the modern form of what our state constitution said and that the court should remain open? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Just ask any attorney who files 
a document at 11.59 p.m. <laughs> on the last day that it's due. And believe it or not, we have that happens. And it happens more often than you would think. But yes, it, it's that type of access. And we are constantly trying to provide greater access to everyone because there shouldn't be, and I've mentioned the artificial barriers. We should get to the merits of each dispute to resolve them in a, a reasonable, in accordance with the law. I meant to ask you this when you were talking about parents checking up on the boyfriends. Juvenile records. I mean, it seems to me there's only so much that a concerned parent can find out about a potential suitor of their 15 or 16-year-old daughter. Sure. Are juvenile records included in any of this, and where do they fit into the system? They fit in this way. Once again, they come under the presumption that they're public. There are laws that the legislature has passed saying, for instance, cases involving child abuse and neglect, okay, they should be confidential because you don't want to saddle a child, an abused child, with having that record out there. I mean, that would just be the, the second injury or worse injury than, than they'd already suffered. So there, there are those competing type public interest. I believe it used to be that way on delinquency cases. They were confidential. But I believe the legislature recently has loosened that up some. So in answer to your question, I think by and large, most juvenile proceedings are closed. Confidential records are not available. To the extent that that's been changed recently by the legislature, which I'm not up on, there might be a few that are available. If a juvenile's judged to be an adult for court proceedings, well, of it's, course, it's, it's that already would, yeah. open. When as soon as they're judged to be an adult, they, that would be an adult case then. And I think some of that prior to that may be public. I, I'm just not up on that, and I don't want to mislead anyone yeah, yeah. about that. But, but that, there, there could be some juvenile records that are available. That's always been a very tender thing to, to deal with, yeah. legislatively as well as judicially. Yeah. We have to be very careful about this. The presumptions, everything public. There are public policy reasons that sh some records should not be. Personally, I think the legislature is in the best position to set those public policies on it. And they've had some good, good debates and discussions about it. And that's the exact place to have that discussion, in my opinion. Are probate records on this on the system? Are they too uh, low down or where, where are they? Uh, probate cases are on the system and the e-filed records are available internally, may not be available publicly. They would be if someone went to the courthouse to get them. But putting them on remote access is a really, really tricky situation because they contain a lot of uh, personal information. This has been... Uh... A great way to come back to the studio, Farah. It has it's been, been a great topic. Yes, uh, Judge, it's been delightful learning about court automation. I did not think this topic would be quite as interesting as it has been. <laughs> and to learn of all the facets that go into, you know, every day, one, providing that equal access to the information and two, protecting the information at the same time. So thank well, you. Thank you. I've enjoyed being here. And we want to thank you for being with us on this edition of Is It Legal 2, a special production of the Missouri Bar as we've explored CaseNet and the state's court automation system. Our thanks to the Chief Judge Gary Lynch with the Southern District Missouri Court of Appeals. It's been good talking to you today, Judge. It's been fun. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. 
Before we go, this program series is going to be focusing on a lot of our basic individual rights to shed some light on the U.S. Constitution and the rights we have under it. Here's the Missouri Bar Citizenship Education Director, Tony Simons, to tell us more. As we've discussed in other programs, the power of the judiciary ultimately comes down to the people's trust and confidence in the courts. Court automation enhances the trustworthiness and reliability of the courts and thus strengthens the power of the judiciary in a number of ways. Court automation allows the judiciary to work more efficiently and effectively. Efficiency and effectiveness will enhance the people's view of the courts. Court automation provides an important service to the people. In doing so, the people's appreciation of the courts will be increased. Court automation contributes to the transparency of the judicial branch. The more people know about and understand what the courts do, the more likely it is that they will have trust and confidence in the courts. Court automation allows greater access to the courts and provides more opportunities for peaceful resolution of conflicts in our state. As Judge Lynch points out, technology levels the playing field for people with diverse backgrounds. As is the case with Show Me Jury, court automation may allow us to strengthen our commitment to specific provisions in the Constitution. It is one thing to speak about the right to a trial by jury as guaranteed in the Sixth and Seventh Amendments, It is another to use technology to make that right a reality for the people of Missouri. Put in its most basic terms, court automation is an essential component of public trust and confidence in the courts. This trust and confidence will have the effect of strengthening the power of the judiciary and ensuring it will play its essential role in our constitutional system. The cause of court automation in Missouri has been greatly enhanced by the leadership of Judge Gary Lynch. Judge Lynch possesses attributes that have been essential to our success in this area. Legal expertise, technological knowledge, wisdom, energy, patience, and collegiality. It was particularly significant that Judge Lynch expressed his hope that technology might be used as a way for the courts to teach the public about the civil resolution of disputes. This statement captures so much about Gary Lynch, his view of the role of the courts, his recognition of the importance of technology, his appreciation for education, and his desire for the courts to resolve disputes and to work toward a better society. I'm sure he would be the first to say that court automation has not been just about Gary Lynch, that he is but a part of a larger group of hardworking and innovative people. This is true. However, it took someone with his particular experience and perspective to lead this effort in the most effective fashion possible. Judge Lynch understands technology and how to harness it. However, he also understands that technology is a tool, a means of achieving civil resolutions. It is that perspective that has allowed court automation to flourish in Missouri. 
We all owe a debt of gratitude to Judge Gary Lynch for his work on behalf of the administration of justice and the people of this state. Nothing further, Your Honor. There are some resources. That's right. If you want to learn more about the law and Missouri's court automation systems, including some how-to videos on how to use WebEx, you can visit MissouriLawyersHelp.org. That's MissouriLawyersHelp.org, a website produced by the Missouri Bar, where you can find an array of information on various legal topics to help you better understand the law. That's because the more you know about the law, the better decisions you can make for your life, your family, and your finances. I'm Farah Fight. And I'm Bob Pretty. We'll see you on the next edition of Is It Legal 2?